Tonight we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Big difference from covering 30 or 40 in the book of 1 Kings, I suppose. Ephesians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word. And we thank you even for these short words at the beginning of these books in your scriptures which seem on the surface to just have irrelevant details, Uh, but Lord, there are no irrelevant details in your word. So we pray that through the preaching of the word tonight that you would address our hearts and point us to Christ Jesus, our Lord. In Christ's name we pray, amen. A lot of things change a lot of things about us especially time. I mean, there's, there's a multi-billion dollar industry built around the fact, wh- whose business model is, that time is going to change how you look. And it makes money to try to reverse that change that time has on your body, the, 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 the change that changes how you look. Time changes things about us, especially it changes our, our outsides, but, but really, Only one thing can change our insides, the gospel. In fact, the power of the gospel changes everything about us more extensively and more rapidly and more permanently than time ever could. Specifically, uh, the gospel changes things that, that time can't even touch. It changes what we are, it changes what we have, it changes who or whose we are, it changes our whole persons. And Ephesians proves that for us even in its greeting. Unbeknownst to us and probably contrary to what we would think, the greetings in these letters of Paul and other letters, other epistles in the New Testament, they serve a purpose. And one of those purposes obviously is to tell us who a letter is from and who a letter is to. And we have that in Ephesians uh, chapter one, verse one. We learn that the letter's author and its recipient, its recipient, we know who they are. But we learn more just about, uh, more than just who they are, we learn uh, that these two bodies, Paul and his church, the Ephesians, are really two of the most unlikely to belong in the beginning of this letter in the first place. I mean, first, just, just consider how, how unlikely it would be for Paul to be writing this letter. The first time that we meet Paul in the New Testament is in Acts chapter nine, and what is he doing? It states explicitly that he's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He was actively persecuting the church of Jesus Christ, actively capturing men and women of the church so that he might bring them to Jerusalem, that they might be murdered for the very faith that he's gonna argue for in this letter. 
We would have classified Paul as, very generously, as a persecutor. He would be the subject of our church's praying of the imprecatory Psalms. We would be praying that, 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 that the Lord would do away with him for the sake of our church and our families. He was an evil man. And the city of Ephesus wasn't much better. Ten years before this letter was written, it was a city that was in large part that made its living by manufacturing idols. And one of its main revenue streams was the active construction of objects that were used in false worship of pagan gods. Ten years before the letter to the Ephesians had been written, this place had no sign of a Christian and it was an e- as evil of a place as anywhere else under the sun. But isn't it just interesting how we have both an evil persecutor of the church and a pagan city in the first two verses of one of the most theologically rich books of the entire New Testament. What in the world does does that kind of information mean? Well, first off, it means that the gospel of Jesus Christ has some of the most unlikely people as its objects. It means that the gospel is for people who, who are a mess, or maybe even stronger for that than that, for people who are evil, people who are the scum of the earth. It means that the gospel is not just for people who kind of mostly have it together and just need a little bit of help to kind of tidy up all the rest of the areas of their life. It means that the gospel is for people who are really bad, people who need help, people who are sick. Like Jesus says in Mark 2, 17, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came, to call the, uh, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The gospel's for people who, who are a mess. That's evidenced by the very author and recipient of this letter. It's, pe- it's for people who, who we wouldn't think would stand a chance at being a Christian. Which honestly is, is, a, is a reminder that we need to hear quite often, both for ourselves and our family and the people around us, our friends, the people that we know. We need to be reminded that there is no caliber of person that the gospel can't change. That there's no sin that the gospel can't free you from. There's no person to walk the face of this earth and there are some some very evil people on the face of this earth. There's, There's not a person to walk the face of this earth that can't be changed by God himself through the gospel, which is the power of salvation to all who believe. And the gospel is not just for very sick, very evil, very bad people. The gospel transforms very sick, very evil, very bad people. That's its nature. The fact that Paul and the Ephesians are mentioned in the two verses in this again, one of the most theologically rich letters of the New Testament is proof that they aren't what they used to be. In other words, they were not only objects of the power of the gospel, but they had been transformed by the power of the gospel. For example, I mean, we can see Paul. 
Again, at one point in time, he was the chief among the persecutors of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Acts 9, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Yet here, identified not by his sin or his past or anything to do with what he had been, but by what God had willed, had made, had transformed him to be, which was a spokesperson for God Almighty, an apostle. The power of the gospel had transformed him from being a murderer of the people of God to being one of the 13 men who preached the gospel and planted the church of Jesus Christ to being a man who would write 13 of the 27 letters of the New Testament. Again, a spokesperson for God himself, a man who had been transformed, completely changed from top to bottom. The same thing's the case with the recipients the Ephesian church, a church that was made up of people who used to make idols for a living, a people who were pagans, a people who worshipped false gods, a people who really just couldn't get any more lost than they already were, yet now called saints, faithful in Christ Jesus. A people who had been declared holy in the courts of heaven. Being in Christ and defined by Jesus' holiness and by Christ's righteousness and by his obedience. A people who used to be sinners who were destined for eternal hell but who had been transformed by the power of the gospel and now citizens of heaven made holy by the blood of Jesus Christ. A people who the moment, the very moment they were called to Christ, no longer defined by their sin but called holy in the courts of heaven. Isn't that amazing that this church is called holy, they're saints right now, right in that minute. The moment they were converted, they were called holy in the courts of heaven. No matter how much sanctification they had ahead of them, no matter how evil they were in their starting points, here called holy. A people who were holy in the courts of heaven Being in Christ, defined by his holiness and his obedience and his righteousness, a people who were saints in heaven but who were faithful on earth, faithful in Christ, meaning that their union with Christ was working itself out in in real and tangible ways in their lives. A people who had, by the power of the gospel, put off their paganism and their idol worship and instead were devoted to worshiping the one true God. A people who had put off their sexual immorality and their crookedness and their evil and their morally bankrupt lifestyle and instead put on Christ and were being conformed to his image. A people as we learn in verse four, who had been chosen before the foundation of the world that they should be holy and blameless before God himself. A people who we learn in chapter two, verses one and two and five, a people who were dead in trespasses and sins in which they once walked, but who had been made alive together with Christ. 
People who used to, who couldn't be any less interested in the God of heaven and earth who were now declared by God himself holy and faithful. The gospel is is transformative by its very nature. Whatever it touches cannot, it does not stay the same. It's like a splash of bleach on that favorite pretty bright red shirt. Shirt's not gonna stay the same. It can't stay the same. There's nothing you can do to reverse it. It won't stay the same. The gospel is transformative by its very nature. Which means that as those who proclaim to believe in the gospel as Christians, we have to ask ourselves, you know, how is the gospel at work in me? How is the power of the gospel changing me, transforming me? How am I being changed today? What is, what is actively happening in this very moment, at this very time? How am I being changed Right? If the gospel is transformative in nature, then that means it's transformative in nature from the very moment I become a Christian to the moment I see Christ. And some of us have very ready answers to that question because we spend a great deal of time thinking and praying and talking about this very thing, about how God is changing us and what he's doing in our lives, how he's changing and shaping and transforming who I am. But some of us may not have quite as as ready of an answer to that question. And And it really might do us some good to kind of think about that to think about how we're growing and being transformed. Because if we have a really hard time coming up with an answer to how the gospel is changing us as people, if if it's transformative in its nature, if we have a really hard time with coming up kind of with ways it's, it's changing us, it's shaping us, it might be time to kind of ask a different question, which is, well, well, you know, if the gospel's not transforming me, then, then what is? Something's shaping me, something's transforming me, something's changing me. If it's not the gospel, then what is it? And I think an answer to that question will kind of inform the first one. How are we being shaped and transformed by the power of the gospel in this moment? is always changing us. But what is it that that kind of initiates that change? Well, it's the grace of God. Moving down into verse two, Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse two kind kind of reads like, you know, just very nice words to end a greeting with. But the Bible doesn't have nice words that don't really mean anything. Grace and peace is not a wish. It's really not even a prayer. It's, it's, it's from the apostle, the spokesperson of God the Father and Christ the Son. So when, when he says grace and peace to you, it functions more like a, a benediction, an actual conveyance of grace, an actual conveyance of peace. 
But let's kind of stop and ask the question, you know, what, what are these two terms? What is grace and peace? What is it really that's benedictizing me, that's, that's blessing me? What really is grace? Well, you know, like we said a moment ago, grace is always what initiates transformation. It's the unmerited favor of God. It's what works faith in our hearts and gives us belief. It's what saves us. And apart from grace, there is no salvation from sins. With grace, God provides what, what we cannot provide for ourselves, one commentator says. Salvation from sins, the righteousness of Christ, reconciliation, he, he provides all of these things for us in grace that we could never provide for ourselves. But grace not only provides, it also produces. It's not an accident that that grace and peace go together. They're related. The grace of God, sovereignly given to his people, produces peace. And what kind of peace? You know, are we talking about that, that kind of peace of reconciliation, that, that peace that, you know, where I used to be an enemy of God and now I'm made his friend? Are we talking about that kind of peace where I'm no longer at war with him but now I'm declared his friend? Or are we talking about the kind of peace, you know, the, the existential peace, that, that quiet kind of settledness of mind, peaceful thinking? I think we're talking about both. By the grace of God, we have peace with God through Christ, right? We have been moved from kind of the category of of enemy to the category of friend, from the category of enemy to the category of family. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. And then the Romans 5.1, remember, since we have been justified with Uh, By faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The truth of the gospel is that by God's grace, we have been reconciled to God himself. Our status has been changed from enemy to friend by the blood of Jesus Christ. But that category change produces the other kind of peace. That quiet, settled calmness of mind. The gospel, by God's grace, gives us peace in our minds and hearts. That existential peace is a result of peace with God, which is wrought by the grace of God in the gospel. You see, this is kind of one, another one of those instances where we're faced with the fact that these big pregnant theological terms like justification and reconciliation and grace have meaning beyond just some theological abstract. Right, those big, pregnant theological terms have meaning beyond abstract theological concepts. They, they actually work themselves out in here, in our hearts, and here, and in our minds. 
And so when Paul pronounces grace and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, he's not just uttering some good-sounding theological terms that kind of fit together in a nice sentence, but they don't really have any meaning. They don't really have any effect on our persons. He's pronouncing words that are pregnant with power from heaven. When the spirit of God through the word of God through the reading and preaching of God's word is pronouncing that to you he's imparting grace and peace to you. And so theology has kind of real tangible effects. The grace of God in the gospel produces actual peace which we obviously need. It doesn't take long to realize that there's a, there's a countless number of things that can disrupt and disquiet our lives and minds. Sickness and health in general, people, people being mean, people being dumb, all, all manner of things around us can change our circumstances which and therefore changes quite easily our state of minds and our state of hearts from one of peace to one of panic. But the theology that's given to us here in verse two reminds us that there's an anchor in the midst of changing circumstances around us. The the, the one anchor, the one thing that never changes is God's grace for me in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the subsequent peace that is held out to us in the gospel. And I say that it's kind of at least this kind of peace is is held out because really it's yours for the taking. You know, that other category of peace, that reconciliatory peace says, all that has already been accomplished. It's already been finished by the grace of God. The blood of Jesus Christ has has, has, uh, done away with all the wrath that I am due from God as an enemy of his. And I have peace with God kind of up here in, in theology land in my relationship with him. I've I've, I've changed categories from from enemy to friend. That kind of peace is done, it's secure, it never changes in Christ. But again, our, our kind of quiet settledness of mind and heart just kind of goes out the window so easily. That kind of quiet settledness of mind and heart kind of fits more in the category of obedience or or self-control in a sense, right? It takes the application of scripture by the spirit to, to truly enjoy that kind of existential peace. It takes hard work, the hard work of applying theology to real life to really enjoy it. It takes both me and you preaching to your heart that though everything may change, may fail, may burn to the ground, that God's grace never will. And so as a result of that, you can be at peace because you belong to him. You are his. You belong to him to God our Father. I don't know if you caught it, but there's one three-letter word in that last line that matters a lot. 
hour. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father. The gospel not only means transformation, it not only means peace, but it means that we belong. It is a fact that that God is the Father, but he's not just that. By the grace of God, through the power of the gospel and by our Lord Jesus Christ, he is our Father. Ephesians 1.5, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And on down in verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. In order to obtain an inheritance, you have to be a member of the family. You have to not only have God as the Father, but God as your Father, God as our Father. It has to become personal. And so the gospel not only changes what we are, which is transformed, it not only changes what we have, which is peace, but it also changes who we are and whose we are. Adopted children of God, our Father. Paul here isn't identified as a persecutor of the church. In Ephesians 1 verse 1, the Ephesians are not identified by their idolatry and false worship either. The fact that we now belong to the family of God, our identity has changed and we now are children of God, our Father, and we belong to him, which means that we're no longer identified by our sin or by what we used to be or by what we used to do. We're not identified by our past drunkenness. We're not identified by our sexual history or either our sexual present. By, we're not identified by our idolatry or by our greed or by our wickedness or by anything else other than the fact that you belong to God. You are a child of God. The gospel changes everything even how you are identified, how you are looked upon from the outside. The power of the gospel changes everything. And so in conclusion, one application from this, these short two verses. If the gospel changes everything, then it's, it's probably a good idea again to take inventory of how the power of the gospel has changed you. How it's changed what you are, how God has, has, has brought you from being a wicked sinner to now declared as a saint in the courts of heaven. How God has, has changed you from loving your sin to hating it to growing uh, in holiness to being faithful in Jesus Christ, faithfully serving him out of your union with him, your, his power. 
how God has, has changed you by his grace and given you peace in your mind, no longer a slave to erratic thoughts and erratic, uh, erratic state of heart, but has given you peace in your heart and, and how God has not, you're no longer defined by your sin, you're no longer defined by your destiny, which is hell and for eternity, but you're defined by whose you are, which is a child of the almighty God. It's good in light of this passage to take inventory of how the power of the gospel has been at work in our lives, how God's grace has borne fruit in our persons. Because that in and of itself gives us opportunity to give praise to God Almighty for all that he has done and all that he has accomplished in us. But it also at the same time gives us an opportunity to see where we can grow to show us those areas of weakness where the gospel, the power of the gospel can be applied so that we can be transformed into something even greater. Application number one, take inventory. Second application, be encouraged. This upcoming Saturday will be one year since I've been here. I've had the opportunity to see the, the power of the gospel change my own life. I've, I've found that, that Christ Ridge is a place where just God seems to naturally change people by his grace. I've been subject to that change. The Lord's transformed me in, in some wonderful ways and I, I thank him for that. It wasn't always easy sometimes very painful, but also wonderful and good. But what's been even better than how the Lord has changed me is the fact that I've been able to be a a kind of a front row seat observer to how he's changed you. I've been able to observe how God, by his grace and the power of the gospel, has transformed you as a body, but also individually. And I've not only had the opportunity to be an observer of that, I've also had the opportunity to enjoy that. And some of you, most of you, in fact, were Christians decades before I even got here. And so I've had the opportunity over the past year to enjoy the change, the transformation that God has done in you over the course of a lifetime. And so I want to thank you for being a congregation who, is, who loves the Lord Jesus and who truly endeavors to be changed in your whole person and conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And so be encouraged. And in conclusion, my pastoral charge to you this evening is this. Please don't change your desire to be changed by the power of the gospel. Don't change your desire to be changed by the power of the gospel. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a God who saves your people. You not only transform us uh, into 
holy people in the courts of heaven, but you work that holiness out in our lives. So we give you thanks. And thank you for the body of Christ's ridge. We thank you for working change in her and we pray that you would continue to do so. We pray that you would do that even now as we partake of the Lord's Supper. In Christ's name, amen.